Welcome to the Discovering Our Scars podcast, where we have honest conversations about things that make us different. Our mission is to talk about things you might relate to, but that you don't hear being discussed in other places. Our hope is that you're encouraged to have honest conversations with people in your own life. I'm Steph. And I'm Beth. On today's show, we're going to have an honest conversation titled, What We Have Learned by Listening to Black Lives Matter. Then we will invite you to reflect on the conversation in your own life with questions for reflection. And the show will close with Slice of Life. And if you wonder what that is, stay tuned till the end. I do actually want to mention today's date. Today's date is June 19th, which is also known as Juneteenth. Juneteenth, yeah. Which is a holiday that I had not heard of before, but I am so excited. I now know what it is. I'm going to be celebrating it every year. Beth, can you tell us what it is? So Juneteenth is a celebration of the emancipation of enslaved persons in the United States. And it came about because after the Emancipation Proclamation, two and a half or three years after the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by President Lincoln, that uh, a Union soldier like came into Texas, rode into Texas and delivered the proclamation there. It has been celebrated as sort of the last announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation, like it had finally reached everyone. And there were, you know, obviously the news spread then throughout Texas on different days, but it started in Texas that people kind of agree they would celebrate on Juneteenth or on June 19th, which then became shortened to Juneteenth. Mm-hmm. And it has um, it has spread from there to be sort of an Independence Day celebration for real independence. I, it is celebrated in, in, in um, I think, six, nine, 40 something states, not all not all 50 states, but. Um, I'm really hoping it becomes a full-fledged national holiday that we all celebrate. And because this is this is not a a black community thing. This is a an all community thing. Like American history is is all of our history. And this is something that like when I read about it, I was like, this is like bigger than July 4th. I mean, this was freedom for all. This was not just freedom for, you know, the white guy on July 4th. So I um so I'm really glad I'm aware of it now and I'm going to try each year to celebrate it. I think, you know, one of the ways we're celebrating is we're recording this episode That's right. and we're talking about things we've learned since we've been listening to the Black Lives Matter movement and the protesting and all that's been happening recently. And that is one one of those things that I think um, I I would not have known about before. I would uh, so I'm really glad that's been brought to my attention. But there's a lot of things we want to talk about today. A couple of weeks ago, we had um, a great conversation with Ashley, who is a DIY friend of mine. Her, smashing, uh, yeah, smashing, smashing DIY. Yes, <laughs> it's her Instagram handle. But um, we've um, since that since we had that conversations, we've been continuing to listen. We haven't just one and done kind of thing. We have been listening. We've been really debating on the podcast on how to handle all of this. You know, you've noticed we've had some other episodes because we've had a couple episodes recorded and ready to go and we've moved stuff around. So we, um, you know, we're trying to make it make sense, but we also want to continue having these conversations. We'll, we'll continue to have more of these kind of conversations um, as we learn more and as, as it makes sense. So let's just get into it, Beth. One of the big things that I have heard the term before, but I never really learned what, what it meant and what it was. And, you know, I just kind of hear it thrown around and um, was systemic racism. I feel yeah, like a big one. I finally have an understanding of it. I think there's this really, we could put a link in the show notes, but there's this really good like stick figure video of what systemic racism is that I watched and it really kind of hit home to me. But can you kind of explain your understanding of it? Well, I will say this has definitely been um, 
a growing area for me, a growing edge. And, and Juneteenth actually ties into this for me, for my own understanding, because I have only ever thought of the emancipation of humans as a good thing. I still think it's a good thing, but I've never thought before about what happened after emancipation. And so as I've been learning about Juneteenth, and also there's this great Netflix documentary called 13th, which is about the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery, but says you can't enslave a person. And then there's this exception, except for as penalty for a crime. Mm. And so part of the systemic racism is that we went from having enslaved persons to creating basically a criminal class so that we could then exploit their labor in many of the same ways that their labor was exploited when they were enslaved. Also related to that, that I'm, and I'm just, um, I'm just really starting to understand how all of this ties together is to say to someone, you're no longer enslaved, but we're not going to make any provision for you to have any economic um, benefits. So we're not going to provide you with food or housing or a job. And to say to landowners who were enslaving people to say to them, we now expect you to pay a living wage to these persons who you have enslaved. I think that was naive at best and probably something more sinister at worst, right? Because uh, I, I just don't know where the economics of how the economics of that were ever going to work out such that the people who had been enslaved were going to be able to recover from that. So all of that feeds into systemic racism and we see it playing out today in mass incarceration and even in police brutality, which is what the Black Lives Black Lives Matter movement is really speaking out against, uh, is the brutalization of people of color by police officers. And I also want to mention with systemic racism, it it also comes to to the housing situations, true, um, and also with bankers. Like there, there's um, and we'll put again, we'll put a link to this video, but there was like certain areas that were redlined by bankers that they couldn't give loans to. And so it's, it's just this, it's a society thing. There's all these things set up for failure for the black community. And that's what continues to happen within systemic racism. That's what. Right. And um, I, and I think that there were many people along the way who were, who have continued to be involved in the system who, who never made the connection between this is going to be bad for black people. They only thought about how it was going to be good for them. Mm-hmm. And that has gone a long way in perpetuating the systems that oppress people. So we see it in housing. We see it in um, in default segregation because there is economic segregation and that that then impacts schools. Yeah, education. And so then there's an education gap. And Well, basically systemic racism is... Racism within the system. I mean, that's what it is, is everything that is part of a system, there's racism there that is created. And that's what we're talking about breaking down that needs to break down and change so that we all have the same rights. And um, and then, you know, one of the things we've been hearing about since the protests have been happening is defund the police. And I have to tell you, the first time I heard it, I was like, whoa, 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 what is what does that mean? Like, that sounds real bad. Like, don't we need police was my first thought. And we do. And we need, we need good police officers. Yeah. We need, we need law and order. Yes. We need, we need that balance. Um, but I can tell you, I, instead of just shutting down and saying, Oh my gosh, that's too radical. That's something I, there's no need to defund the police. 
I questioned, what does that mean? Right. And once I digged into what that actually meant, I, my eyes were open and I thought, oh, yeah, okay, I see what they're talking about. So my understanding of defund the police, and there's different understandings and there's different levels of it as well. But right now, the police force has a ton of responsibility. And all I can talk about, I can talk about my experience and how that really kind of opened my eyes when I started hearing about defund the police. Um, so in my book, you know, it starts out where I had a, you know, a mental health issue. I was dealing with um, non-suicidal self-injury and I had hurt myself and a police officer came to my dorm room and he said, um, can I take you somewhere that will help? And my arm is bleeding. So I assumed that was the ER, but I didn't know what was going on. I was, I had never interacted with police before. I'd never had an accident, never had anything, never interacted with police. I wasn't scared the police was there, but I also was like uncomfortable because it's the police. The police is someone that like has a gun and can, you know, arrest you. So I was definitely like on my guard, um, when he was there and he said, I want, can I take you somewhere that help? I'm like, you don't say no to the police. Okay. So I get in his police car. Well, and, and also you wanted help. Well, I, I didn't know what, I knew something had to happen. Yeah. I didn't know what I needed. And I, I trusted the police officer and, um, he took me to this place called Central receiving center. And that's a place set up in Orlando for all. I don't know if it's still around actually, but set up for anyone that presents with mental issues is sent to this kind of holding cell and then they decide what to do with you. And anyways, in my case, it, it wasn't the right choice. It wasn't the right move. Um, I wasn't a danger to myself or others. I know it's complicated. It sounds on the surface. It sounds like, you know, I don't know what it sounds like to you, but, Mm -hmm. um, on the surface, it sounds bad. I definitely was having mental health issues. Yes. I said that I've dealt with it. Um, but my psychologist was never called. My parents were never called. There was no conversation. There was just being locked up. And later on, I talked to that police officer because he continued to stay in contact with me. And I asked him, I said, you know, why did you send me there? He said, you know, I had about a half hour class on what we're supposed to do when people present with these kind of issues. I really didn't know what the place was or what they would do, but this is what I was told to do. And I don't know if it's the right choice, but it's the only thing I could do. And right there, I was Basically, my freedoms and rights were taken away for four days of my life when I was in that hospital and I was giving no treatment, no anything. And he put me there. He, But he had no idea. He didn't have the training. He didn't have the time to sit with me to really understand what I needed. So all that's to say is what we're talking about is police have too much responsibility. There was no need for a police to come to my dorm room. Right. No crime had been committed. No crime. Right. I didn't. I, I hurt myself. And I didn't hurt anyone. There was no one to arrest. If a mental health professional had come, I don't think I would have ended up where I did. I would have, my psychologist would have 100% been called. She would have told them I didn't need to be in an inpatient facility. She would have explained, but none of that happened because the police officer that had half an hour of training was told with a pamphlet, this is where you send people, is where he sent me. And so what we're talking about with defunding the police, the concept is reallocating funds, not taking away, we need police, we need them for what they're set up for, but they have too much responsibility. And that's what we're talking about is having other people in place for other situations, especially mental health issues. I can't even imagine if I had been, if I had had interactions with, like if I was, if I was black and I had a police officer come to my dorm room, can I take you to a place? I can't imagine 
how different that would have felt if I had, if I was black, if I had interactions, negative interactions with police in the, in the past, I have no idea how that would have ended. And, and I know I didn't get the help I needed. And I know if I was black, I definitely would not have gotten the help I needed. And I feel like police officers bring a whole different set of feelings and emotions, especially for the black community who have had lots of negative interactions um, so someone already going through anxiety and stress and, and all of these emotional things, having a police officer present right there next to you saying, can I take you to a place is not helping the situation. So I really think that would be great to bring in mental health professionals to, for those kind of things. And for drug situations, they, they're also talking about having other trained people to come in when, when there's no crime that's been committed. Well, drugs, I mean, it's right. It's complicated. Yeah, I think but. that, I think that the drug question is more complicated. Yeah. But in when we're talking about um, mental health, I think uh, when a police officer shows up somewhere that they've been called, right, I think they sort of have three choices. One is to do nothing. One is to take someone to jail. And the other is to take someone to a hospital. In your case, you needed to go maybe to an ER is where an I need ER. to go. Yeah. Um, but in that case, an EMT should have been called, right? Not a police officer. And so we so that's a great example of police officers being expected to handle situations that are outside of their training mm-hmm. because it doesn't have anything to do with the criminal code. Yeah. Wasn't there a man in the central receiving center while you were there who, who somehow you knew that he had had a lot of interactions with police? Yeah, actually. Um, so I was thinking about since, since all this has been happening, um, I was just, I was thinking, I was like, was there more, you know, people of color in the mental hospital, like I was trying to think. And actually when I thought about it, I was like, no, I think there was more white people than anything. Um, but there was definitely people, Hispanic people. And there was one, one black man that I really remember. And I actually wrote about him in my book when he came in, he came in the day before I left. And when he came in, he was, you could see he was struggling. He was, there was voices around him. He was responding to people that weren't there. It was scary. He was very tall. I wasn't like, um, you know, I didn't, I, well, I didn't know if he could be violent, you know, mental health issues. He had, um, it was clear he had schizophrenia at least with the voices. Um, and I was definitely scared and apprehensive just for that fact, that fact alone. And, um, in the next day he, um, we, I had to go to group session and he was there and he was talking about how, um, you know, the voices tell him to do bad things and he doesn't want to do those things. And he wants to be on the med, the medication, but he can't afford the medication. So every so often the police officers pick him up off the street, take him to the facility for a couple of days, give him the drugs he needs and he f- gets better And then he goes back on the street and this vicious circle continues to happen. And that was really disheartening to hear because like, what is the system doing? Nothing. It's, it's, this is your setting. And he's a suit. Like when he was on his meds, he was the kindest, gentlest guy. Um, Right before I left, um, I saw him again. He came up to me and I, and I had a hundred percent different feeling about him because he, I could see him and only him. It wasn't, there was no voices talking to him. He was, he was just pure him. He was a really sweet guy. He came up to me and he saw me reading a Bible. Um, and he said, he said, Hey, you know, excuse me, where, where did you get that? And I said, Oh, you know, one of the pastors here gave it to me. Um, I bet it'll give you one. If you ask, he said, Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And, um, as he walked away, I realized, why didn't I give him my Bible? Like <laughs> I, I have him out, uh, you know, I have Bibles at home. Like, why didn't I give it to him? So I was kicking myself. And then 
I saw him again and I, I stopped him. I said, hey, you know, this is yours. And I handed him the Bible and he just looked, his eyes went right into my eyes and he just kind of like had this like, we just made this human connection and he said, God bless you. Mm-hmm. And he just took that Bible and started reading. And I was just like, wow, like that was such a connection. Like there was other people in the hospital and there was a couple interactions I had, but that's the most like impactful thing. And also it was like, so like such a human moment, but also it was, it was sad because I realized like he's such a good person and he's not getting the help he needs. And the system is set up to, to fail him. And that was just so frustrating to know. And, this, and the system is set up to fail the police in that situation yes, as yes. well, because what he need, what he needed was ongoing access to mental health care mm-hmm. and mental health medication. Exactly. And, and instead it was okay. Well, when he, when the voices start to tell him to do bad things and the police will be called, that's not fair to the police. Mm-hmm. It's not fair to him. It's not fair yeah. to the police. It's not fair to society. Like we need a better solution for those situations. Exactly. And that I think is part of what the folks who are pushing to defund the police are saying yeah. that there needs to be better inner, better interventions for mental health. And also in cases of drug abuse, um, and social service interactions or social service interventions when there are um, domestic squabbles. Because we really ask the police to do a lot. And also homelessness. We ask the police mm-hmm. to deal with homelessness yes. and vagrancy. Well, I, and I believe this gentleman was homeless. I think he was living on the streets. And I think that was part of it is he didn't have a home. So he didn't have money to buy the meds. And the police knew he was a good guy. The police knew like when he was on his meds, like he was like, you know, a teddy bear. And this was just the vicious circle that kept happening because the system was broken. And the, yeah, I mean, the police were put in a very bad situation to have to continue. I think that's part of it too, is just, there are some really bad police officers. There is no explaining how those police officers, especially when they have things on their records that like time and time again, there's no excuse for how these people continue to be on the force. Like it, Right. Like ha- Derek Chauvin to, yeah. who murdered George Floyd. That yeah. has to change. Um, I heard about a state um, and the biggest thing that I'm hearing is all, these changes have to happen on, on a local level. Right. This isn't a, the federal government um, can make some changes, but they can't make, they can't reform the police. That's something that local governments have to do and have to be a, um, you know, a case by case basis. I don't know that it's a, a federal, this, all of this can change. Like, I don't think that is, they can make changes. So I re, just recently there was a, um, executive order signed. And did you have a chance to look at that? I printed it and then forgot to look at it until just now when you said that. That's awesome, Beth. Um, Beth said, <laughs> Beth said it's reading. So I'll, I'll do it. I'll take that one. Um, so there was an executive order signed, um, and it has a lot to do with the police. One of the things I heard that was on it, um, and let me, uh, let me tell you, I don't think, I think this is a step. I don't think this is a leap. I don't think this is, um, you know, one and done. I think this is, um, a move that is hopefully the momentum we need. But one of the things I heard is going to create a national or a federal registry of bad, uh, police conduct. And so police can't just move from one precinct to the other, um, with, you know, bad things on the record. That was one thing that I that I heard whether that's true or not. I hope it is because that needs to happen. One of the things I believe it talks about is, um, to discourage chokeholds, which is where you, um, where you cut off someone's, um, oxygen, I believe breathing capabilities. 
which is what happened with George Floyd. Yeah, there are more and more videos coming out, actually, of where the chokehold has been used and it has resulted in the death of the person being arrested. Yeah. Um, so they're discouraged. The executive order discourages that um, and encourages places to have uh, basically what we talked about is to have mental health professionals go for mental health cases instead of police go for those cases. And it encourages that. And I believe it encourages that because local governments get fed federal funding. And so I think that's where that encouragement comes from is um, through a financial aspect, but um, it yeah. still doesn't change anything on a state level. Just in my quick review of it, it, it is charging the attorney general with setting up um, databases and review procedures and credentialing procedures. And I think that that's a first step to being able to say that this mm -hmm. could be in some way tied to federal funding. It does specifically speak to issues of mental health, homelessness and addiction um, and explains, you know, that these that if we're going to have officers doing this, they've got to be properly trained, yes. that those are resources that have to be put in place and that it calls for an increase in social workers working with law enforcement to try to address those issues. I think part of the challenge is we're hearing a lot more now about the omnibus, omnibus crime bill of the 1990s, which treated, for example, crack cocaine differently from powdered cocaine. So you would have a very small amount of crack cocaine and you would, that would be a felony and you would go to federal prison. And then there were mandatory minimums. And then there was a three strikes and you're out law. And all that happened on the federal level. Well, then states said, this is a good idea. We're going to adopt these as state laws as well. And so you've had a, an incredible growth in the number of interactions between police officers and citizens. You've had an incredible growth in the number of police officers. That was a big thing in the 80s and 90s. Um, I mean, you, you saw it in Republican presidential candidates and you saw it in, um, for example, President Clinton, like they, they all touted, I'm a law and order president and I'm going to increase, increase the police presence and we're going to, we're going to decrease the amount of crime. They were saying that even as the amount of violent crime was decreasing, they were still calling for more and more police. And by treating, again, this is just one example, but by treating crack cocaine differently than powdered cocaine, crack cocaine was something that was more likely to be present in um, a community where there are people of color and cocaine mm. was more likely to be present in a community of white people. And so you could have a lot of cocaine and get a very small penalty. You could have a little bit of crack and you would go to prison. So all of that works together to build this distrust of the system. Mm -hmm. that That's a way systemic racism um, has really manifested itself. And like we were talking to Ashley on that episode a few weeks ago. And, you know, she has a brother who is caught up in that system. Yeah. So the fact that there's an executive order doesn't fix everything. Oh, yeah. Right. But I do think it's important for the federal government to acknowledge that things need to change. Mm -hmm. And so even if the federal government um, can't change local laws, they can be a leader in and how local laws are crafted and how they change. Just like with the omnibus crime bill, uh, it was a bad trickle down in terms of how local laws were changed. Hopefully we can see positive reforms if they start at the top. That doesn't mean that we can ignore what we do locally. Yeah. We have to be active locally as well. And I think that a great example of that 
is um, the, 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 a great example of the power of local government is that Black Lives Matter mural mm-hmm. on the street in D.C., you know, because that's a local government mm-hmm. deciding that they were going to take a stand and make a very public statement. Yeah, I thought that was like a huge um, example of how how much power local governments have, because in fact, and I haven't looked up, I hope it still is this way, but they changed the street in front of the White House to be called Black Lives, Black Lives Matter Plaza. And it was 16th Avenue, I think, below, before. In it was Pennsylvania Pens- Avenue, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they changed the the name of it. I'm hoping it sticks because I think that's amazing. White House, Black Lives Matter, Plaza. Like, I think that'd be a great address. Um, but I think that's a huge, huge thing to see is the White House is calling for military action against right. protest, is doing horrible things to just for a photo op. They're in this little, they're in their own little bubble, but right outside the local government has been able to make changes to the name of their street. I think that's just like, see the power of local government. I think it is definitely something that, um, that we need to be paying attention to and we need to be looking in our own communities um, for, for those changes because they can be made. Um, I heard about, I think it's somewhere in New Jersey. I really um, can't remember, but there was a, um, a local government that a while back, they actually, to make changes to their police force, they fired everybody and they all had to be rehired. So they had to go back through the interview process and they were able to weed out a lot of the bad people from that way. And I thought, oh, that makes so much sense to just let's start with a clean slate and then we don't have to have the game of, um, you know, we can't get rid of this person. We're getting rid of everybody. And then we'll we'll rehire you if if you meet all these qualifications. So um, I don't know what the answer is. I think that's I think that's the tough thing is we do need like some kind of I think it'd be helpful to have some kind of example of this is what we need to adopt instead of each govern each state trying to figure it out local you know government trying to figure it out. Um, so I don't know what that looks like, but I am so happy that the conversation is happening. I'm glad that I looked into what defunding police meant and didn't just take it on the surface because um, we need we need law and order. And that's not that's not what defunding police is about. Some people do want to completely disband the police and make it more community run. And I think all conversations are helpful. I think all conversations with a conversation, nothing's changing, but you're coming up with ideas and coming up with the perfect vision a better vision of what our future can be. So I'm not against hearing anything, even if someone says, you know, we don't need anyone looking after us. I'm open to that conversation. I want to hear different perspectives because I hear a perspective and I'm like, Oh, that's great. And then I hear another one. I'm like, Oh, well that's opposite, but that makes sense. So I, I, I don't think there's any harm in listening and it doesn't take anything away from me. If someone has a different idea and a better idea and a different worldview, that doesn't take anything away from me to hear that and to listen and to try to understand. And I think that's that's something I'm seeing a lot of. Um, there's like this new term, white fer- fragility. White fragility. Yeah. yeah. White fragility. I do want to talk about that. But yeah. before we talk oh. about white fragility, I just want to say that part of what I'm learning in all of this, too, and I feel like it's something I should have learned a long time ago. That keeps happening to me too. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, I should have already known this. I should have already considered this. But what one of the things that I am learning is that when someone says abolish the police, I need to stop and consider what their experiences have been with the police mm-hmm. instead of just saying 
that's wrong. Yeah. Like we need police officers. That is my personal feeling. I think that we need police officers. I think we need law enforcement. I think they need to be well-resourced and well-trained and they need to be well-respected. So when someone says we need to abolish the police, I think that I need to pause and say, what have your experiences with the police been? Because they must have been different than mine. Mm-hmm. For us to have such different opinions on this, if I am learning or as I am learning that other people have had, you know, only negative experiences with police officers, only disrespectful experiences, um, only oppressive experiences, then that points to a problem that I didn't know existed before, but now I know it exists. And so that's where what, what you're saying is so right, that we to be engaged in conversation requires us to be listening and to be learning and to be willing to do that. So white fragility makes that hard. (laughs) White fragility makes it hard to listen and to be willing to learn. So white fragility is that anytime there's this tension over race, white people tend to get defensive Mm -hmm. and they'll say things like, but I'm not like that. I have a black friend, right? <laughs> or we'll say, um, we'll say, well, my family arrived after the Civil War. This doesn't have anything to do with me. Or we'll say, I'm not a racist, right? And all of those things may be true, but they're irrelevant. Mm-hmm. And what we what happens when we say those things is that we're trying to reorient the conversation to be about us mm-hmm. instead of being in that posture of listening and learning from folks who have had a different experience, who from folks who have had the non-white experience in America. I, I'm trying to listen to black voices. They think that's part of this yes. whole time is not just hear, you know, white people talk about this, but I think it's important that we have these conversations. But hearing black voices talk about these experiences, I watched a video uh, the other day on YouTube of a um, just a, a, a friend of, um, of a um, Disney YouTube creator and they were interviewing his friend and he was talking about the racism he's experienced at Disney and um, just very small, subtle things. He says, he says, ultimately though, Disney is one of the only places that he can truly feel comfortable because when he's inside those four walls of like magic kingdom, there's no police. Wow. There's no, and I, I was like, whoa. He said there's there's uh, the police. He's not afraid of like looking behind him. Like, is the police going to come after me kind of thing? And I was wow. like, wow. Woo. Um, and he shared some really um, just interesting stories that I would have never, um, never thought about. I guess there used to be a Disney resort called um, Dixie Landing. It's now called yeah. Port Orleans. And there's still a section called the plantation. Right. And they, his family didn't want to stay at that hotel, but it was like the only one available and they were going to put him in the plantation. And his mom was like, "Mm, no, you're going to move that. And and the person was not even willing to, was not even helpful. And she's like, I need a manager. We need to change this. It's like, that's the, the fact that that is not automatic that you know that that is wrong. Right. That's the problem. That's it's, that is showing that we have just been, and especially with Confederate soldiers and with uh, brands, um, Aunt Jemima, they're changing the brand right. finally, that we've just become complacent with those things. It's just, it's just white noise now. It, be, it was just white noise. And now we're like waking up like, wait, no, this is not okay. Right. We're all Americans and this is not okay because our you know fellow Americans are being uh, treated less than and that's not okay. It's be- not a- what, be- what do you call the bedroom you sleep in at your house? Do you call it the master bedroom? Uh, yes. Yeah. I wonder where that comes from. Gross. Right. Ugh, but we don't even yeah. realize it. We don't even realize how these words are used wow. or to, or to say, um, 
majority as if majority is better and then minority because Mm -hmm. minority is less than words have a lot of power Mm -hmm. and I've been tuned into that as a woman you know to Mm -hmm. understand how words are used to um, to minimize the the value in the role of women but now I'm really beginning to see that I've missed out on a whole lot yeah. of, of things I should have been understanding for a long time. Well, another um, thing I just finished watching is there's a show on Netflix called Black, uh, hashtag Black AF. Yes. And if you don't know what AF stands for, you just look that up. Um, if, but I will tell you, I saw it and it, it's a mockumentary. And I, I'll tell you, it was great. It was, I really enjoyed it because I, I just need light things these days. And it's light. And yet heavy, but it right. was great. And um, and I will tell you though, before all of these things, I don't think I would have watched it. Number one, I don't like what AF stands for, so I would have right. been like, oh. <laughs> and um, and but I'm so glad I watched it because I was able to see into the family, like of a, a black wealthy family, and how they're um navigating that world of being black and wealthy and keeping their culture but you know what that looks like and um I think I thought it was really well done I hope they do another season of it um Netflix now has like a black creator section and so you can see more shows that you wouldn't have been like um targeted at before like they wouldn't have shown you and so I'm um you know it's tough because I don't want to watch anything too heavy but then I know I need to watch some of those mm. things. And it's just, it's like a, it's a tough thing. That's why I was like, let me try this one. And so this has been a good, like understanding someone's life, but not being too heavy. Yeah. There are tons of good resources out there right now. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, actually a United Methodist resource. We have a United Methodist uh, commission on race relations and they have worked with Robin D'Angelo, Dr. Robin D'Angelo, who is the author of white fragility. Mm. She is white and she wrote this book about white fragility and she's she has studied this phenomenon and they have a really great video of her it's i think about 20 minutes long totally worth the watch well about a year about a year ago i started to read how to be an anti-racist by dr ibram kendi first of all it's awesome because he's a florida a&m grad which means he lived here in tallahassee for a time and so i was super stoked about that and then it just was too heavy for me. And I made the wrong choice. I decided that I didn't need to read it. And now I'm realizing what a mistake that was. But luckily, he has created a young adult version of his book. And it's called Stamped. And actually, Jason Reynolds sort of takes part takes um, like the highlights of how uh, of Dr. Kendi's book Stamped, and sort of reformats it as this book for young adults. So I'm doing that I'm leading a um, a study for teenagers, a book study for teenagers on that. I'm learning tons, hearing about their experiences with racism and also then reading the book. And when I'm finished with that, I'm going to try again to read How to Be an Mm Anti-Racist by Dr. Kendi and just commit to not putting it down when it gets hard. I'm also reading um, White Supremacy and Me by Mm -hmm. Layla Said. She is a person of color. And then the other thing is that uh, this past Sunday, instead of having our regular church service at my church... We said, listen, we're online anyway. Let's all together watch a black church service instead of watching ours. Let's try to desegregate for just this one hour at least. Um, And so we have uh, someone who has breached at our church many times who now is pastor of of another local congregation. And so we all kind of joined together and, and... piped into her service, which, you know, it was a way to amplify. It was a very small way to amplify a black voice. I want to circle back to the book, anti-racism. 
or racist. Um, And that's another thing I've been hearing. It's not good enough to be not racist. You have to be actively anti-racist. If you're not anti-racist, you're racist is what, is what, how Dr. Kendi. And so what, what does that mean? Anti-racist. So there are really three categories you might say, or three words that he really works with in his work. There are assimilationists who say we should all just be the same. And that tends to mean we should all be white or live like we're white or have a white experience. It's really um, sort of the sort of the melting pot idea where we discount the value of culture and varied experiences. So that would be assimilationist. And then there are folks who are segregationists who say it's really better if we just stay with quote unquote our own. So white folks stay with white folks. Latinx people stay with Latinx people. Black Americans stay with Black Americans. And and you see this in all of those groups. There are people who have that opinion, who, who want segregation, who want to not be um, together in society. And then anti-racist, they say that anti they say that racism is the problem that needs to change it's not people that need to change so it's not that black people need to be more like white people or that white people need to be different it's that racism needs to change this is actually i'll just read this to you this is from um from stamped racism anti-racism and you a remix of the the book by dr kendy it says anti-racists say there is nothing wrong or right about black people and everything wrong with racism The anti-racists say racism is the problem in need of changing, not black people. The anti-racists try to transform racism. The assimilationists try to transform black people. The segregationists try to get away from black people, right? Anti-racists want to end those ideas that would say that a person of color is different from a white person. Um, Not different, that a person of color is less than Mm -hmm. a person who is white or that Black culture is less than white culture. Those are racist ideas that that don't serve us well in our society. So it's allowing everyone to embrace their own culture and not looking down on other cultures. Is that? That's right. Yeah. It's that that a culture can be different from mine and it can be equally as valuable as mine. Yes. Okay. And I have something to learn from that culture. Exactly. Yeah. And that culture has something to offer me and I have something to offer that culture. But there's no sense of... Mine's the better culture. Greater than yeah. or less than. Yeah. Yeah. So those two ideas come together. Anti-racism and white fragility come together for me in understanding that racism is something that I need to work on in myself and in my family and in my community rather than saying this is something that black people need to change. This is something that black people need to fix or that this is somehow the fault of black people. It's to say that racism is something that black people need to change. That is that is white fragility, mm-hmm. like in its ultimate form. And I I actually had someone say to me one time, you know, I really thought this is a white person say to me. I really thought that President Obama was going to fix all this racism mm-hmm. while he was president. And it's like, mm-hmm. I don't think you understand how racism works. Yeah. And I don't think you understand who's who has the power here to make a change. Mm-hmm. And I have to change what I can, including myself. Yeah. So we just, just hold up a mirror. Right. That's how we change it. That's how we change it. We'd like to invite you to reflect on this conversation for yourself. Beth is going to read a couple questions and leave a pause between each. You can pause the podcast and answer them to yourself, or you can find a PDF on our website. Number one. 
What have you learned from the recent Black Lives Matter protests? Number two, how do you understand racism now as compared to before the protests? Number three, what is your understanding of defunding the police? Does that make you nervous? And number four, have you ever used some or all of the white fragility diversions? Has this conversation changed how you feel about that? Slice of life. Yeah, <laughs> let's have a slice of life. Let's uh, end on a little bit lighter note, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to mention something that I can't remember if I mentioned on the last episode, but um, a couple weeks ago, I donated blood in Tallahassee and they are now doing an antibody test for COVID-19 when you donate blood. So um, I actually went and it was really well done. They You have to wear a mask and there was very few people in the in the bus and it felt really comfortable. But I got my results. Do you, you want to know, Beth? I do want to know. Did I text you? I can't remember. No, you didn't. Oh, I didn't? I, I, no, I had to wait until we were recording the podcast. <gasps> oh, Beth is going to find out. Oh, should I show her? The, I, I have the thing. Okay, I'll tell you. I am negative. <laughs> so you don't have the antibodies. I never had code. So that means the antibody test um, just basically says if you ever had antibodies in your body that would was fought off the virus, that's how you know you had it. And if you may have been asymptomatic. So... My body had not fought anything, so I did not have it. Um, that doesn't mean I can't. Is that what you expected? Yes. Yeah. I, I really did it because I wanted to donate blood because I do it every um, every so often. So uh, it just kind of pushed me over the edge to to get the um, to donate. So I uh, just want to let you know I didn't have it. And um, and one more thing I want to mention because, you know, I'm keeping you so up to date is I have two greyhounds now. Well, I have two greyhounds. Well, now. today you have two greyhounds. Is that going to be a permanent thing? No, this week I've been watching my friend Daniel's greyhound and it's been amazing. His name is Max with an X. And if, as you probably have heard, my dog is named Mac with a, with a C. So that's not right. confusing at all. <laughs> um, but they have been getting along so well, like really good brother and sister. It's been amazing. And he's actually in the room with us, which is shocking because he's usually doesn't go from room to room with the humans, but Mac has rubbed off and taught him go, go where the humans are. I think he just really is excited that I'm here. I, he does like you, which yeah. is surprising because why is it surprising? I'm a very likable human. I know, but he gets <laughs> skittish around other people. So I think he's like, he's come out of his shell. It's amazing. That's it's awesome. like the coolest thing. It's like, I feel like a, like a proud parent, like, Oh, he's growing up. It's so amazing. And he's getting along. And we just put both dogs in my mini Cooper which is tiny. I have a tiny car and they both fit in there. And I did not think that would work at all. I have a mini Cooper Clubman. So it's a little bit bigger than like the regular hardtop. But it was but full, wasn't it? It was With full. two humans and two yeah. greyhounds. It was yes, full. It was full. Yeah. Yeah. Cause my mom was there too. So yeah. Um, I do want to mention that um, when we had our episode um, with Ashley a couple weeks ago, we actually had a comment on our website and if you didn't know, you can actually leave comments on our website. Um, our website is dospod.us. And there's always a link in the description of the podcast to our website. If you want to leave any comments, written comments, you can do that there. But Beth, um, I would love for you to read that because I thought that was a really, really good comment. So Sky left this comment. She said, Steph and Beth, what a fantastic interview. I felt like I was part of a natural yet deeply real conversation between trusted friends. Yay, that's what we're going for. Yes. That's so exciting. I learned so much about the Black Lives Matter movement and feel totally inspired and more educated to share this information with my non-Black friends. 
Thank you, Ashley, for being so forthcoming, kind, and powerful sharing your experience living in this country as a black woman. I especially appreciated the talking point about the priorities of so many Americans whose voices of concern weigh heavier on the burning buildings more than the murdered black men and women and other people of color and the individuals who go unjustly punished. I see you, Ashley, and I will continue to educate myself and self-reflect on how I can further the cause of human kindness, justice, and the ability for everyone to live in a world of love and compassion that celebrates our differences. Thank you, Sky. Yes. I feel like you really got it. That I was know. amazing. That's, oh, that's so good to hear that um, that it that it came across that way. Um, so I want to kind of like challenge you all um, that are listening. So if you made it to this far, bravo, bravo. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, but I would love for you to think right now of one of at least one person that you could share this episode with or any episode, um, especially the uh, the episode with Ashley we had a couple weeks ago. So um, just think about it. Someone in your life that would um, would benefit from hearing one of these episodes. And if you are in the Apple Apple podcast app on your phone. All you have to do is go to our episode that you're listening to. And there's like these three little white dots uh, next to the name of the episode. You click on that and you can hit share and then you can share it through text message or email or whatever and um, share it with them and they'll get it right there on their phone and be able to open it up in the podcast app. Well, Beth, I think we should go celebrate Juneteenth. Um, and one thing I, we've been researching ways to celebrate. One of the things was drinking a red beverage, red beverage. Yep. So I think we should go have a, um, snow cone, a red snow cone. What do you think? Yes. If you'll make it for me, that of sounds Of course good. I will. I have a fresh <laughs> snow cone machine. There's no question. It will be amazing. Let's do that.